It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show. Our mission is to serve you and empower you to make better financial decisions in your life. The episode I did on Sunday night about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank was the most watched and listened to that we've ever done. There are some follow-up questions about FDIC insurance that I'm going to get to after I talk about an old way of living that is becoming extremely popular again in the United States. And later, if you've listened or watched for a while, you know I hate gift cards. I hate gift cards. And if you ignore my advice on them, I have a specific warning for you. When you do buy them to protect your money and the recipient of that gift card, that they end up getting a big fat nothing from your hard-earned money. So, old way of living. If you were to watch old, old, old movies or old TV shows from the early era of television, repeatedly, you had under one roof, and by the way, they were pretty small roofs. The homes were very, very small several generations ago in the United States. And you'd have an older aunt or uncle or great aunt or great uncle or grandmother, grandfather, could be a great grandmother, grandfather, several generations under a single roof. And that's the way Americans lived. And then we went through a very long period of time in the U.S. where people segregated by generation. And so often we had, and we still have in the United States, where let's say grandparents live somewhere else in the United States and the grandkids are scattered and all that. And family connections are not quite the same. I mean, we've got the ability over FaceTime and WhatsApp and Zoom and all that for us to see each other different generations, but you're almost really just getting a snapshot then. Well, for so many different reasons, and there are a lot of them, we now are at a time that almost one in five Americans now live in a multi-generational household. Big, big change. It's like a back to the future kind of thing that we're doing so. There are so many layers to this. Uh, obviously, there are financial circumstances, reasons that people are now living multi-generations. I've talked about what they call the boomerang. And how many people who are adult children that have come back under the roof of their parents, usually because of the housing cost issue. And I can tell you why it's so much part of the angle. Before anywhere else in the country, builders in Southern California and parts of Northern California, when housing costs in California went way beyond what normal earthlings in the United States are used to paying, Builders started building these multi-generational households, many with, you know, a separate entrance. So let's say you had a grandparent or grandparents living in the residence with the parents and the kids, that they could have some amount of privacy, maybe even their own kitchenette, own entrance, things like that, but still under the same roof. And so cost this time is leading to a progression that we've got this roughly one in five of us living in these multi-generationals. But there's a lot of advantages to it. First of all, family members who might 
know each other, but be kind of strangers to each other, really for the good and bad of that, because sometimes too much family is too much, and sometimes there's never enough family. It just depends on the dynamic of the family. But anyway, this is, in many family circumstances, a real net positive. I think about the thing with childcare. You know, we have such a shortage of childcare in the United States. And many times now in these multi-generationals, a grandparent is stepping in and fulfilling a role of providing care for kids in the home while the parents are out working. There are many, many aspects besides just saving money. But it does mean there are some things that make a home more marketable now. And that is, if it has any ability to have a privacy quotient built into it for a relative living in there, um, if it has the things you do where you build a bathroom that's more accessible, you build wider doorways. You know, builders so often have had this obsession with two sixes when really three O's would work so much better on doors. The higher electrical outlets, the more convenient bathroom set up, maybe having where there's not shelving underneath the sink. If somebody is at a point where they're on a walker and it's easier for them to get in and use the sink, sink being potentially higher, all these things going into design or lower, Krista. Yeah, I thought yeah, it was lower. Doing, you, I was like, you, isn't it lower? Doing, it can be either. <laughs> oh. Both have an applicability, higher okay. or lower, depending on the circumstance. Hmm. But these are all design things that when you're renovating something or you're building it, the cost to do it is basically zero. There's no additional meaningful cost to make a place work more flexibly, think of it more modularly, for multiple generations. And so it's something that I think will become a factor if you've got one in five potential home buyers who were specifically looking for houses that fit a multi-generational lifestyle, it is all positive. You think about a pool. You know, we talk about when people ask me about a pool, that pools may enhance your lifestyle in a home, but they narrow your potential market of buyers. And it may lower the cost that you're able to sell your home for in most markets. On the other hand, the things you do to make a house more applicable to wider uses does not hurt the value of a home. It enhances potentially the value of the home and gives you the full wide marketplace instead of cutting out, you know, 20%, 18%, whatever it is, of potential buyers. So just think about that. The other aspect of this is people who want to age in place instead of moving at a certain point. When you're looking at buying a home in your 50s, you want to think about, is this a place I can stay, particularly if you're taking out a 30-year mortgage at that point, is it a place that I can age in place in? What's the deal with steps? What's the deal with the whole living style there if I'm not quite as mobile many years down the road as I am now? Krista? All right, we'll get to these FDIC insurance questions. This is from Mike in Tennessee, but many people wrote in about it. Oh, yeah. You talked about FDIC insurance for bank deposits up to $250,000. You implied that you should not trust advice about going above this amount if you have different deposit categories. If you go to the FDIC official website, 
It says joint accounts are insured up to $500,000. If you have a beneficiary listed, it adds $250,000 for a total of $750,000. Should I not trust this information? No, you can trust this information. What I was talking about when we did our special edition show Sunday night with the bank failure issue is that you cannot trust what anybody tells you who's a bank officer, who's at one of those overpriced fancy desks they put in a bank, any of that stuff. The only thing you can trust is the up-to-the-minute briefings from FDIC, which we have for you at Clark.com. And you can see this works as a green light situation that'll get you beyond the 250. This is a red light. This will not work. And the other twist with the FDIC thing, so there are certain situations where you think, oh, that's fine. I can do this and this and this and this. But it may not be cumulative. And you'll see what I'm talking about as you look at joint and individual accounts, how much total coverage you have. But this is one of those things that there's an old expression, don't even know what it means, but too cute by half, meaning that I don't want you to put your money all in a single institution trying to play these games. I much prefer you spread your money out. One of the reasons that I've always been a fan of that is that if you take the convenience of putting your money all in one place, you're giving up the opportunity to earn more on your money by having the money you need to operate on in your principal financial institution, whether it's a credit union or a bank, but the money you don't need immediately be in good higher earning savings accounts somewhere else, potentially, likely, typically with an online bank, with CDs. Um, I have a CD from my credit union that I did recently that's a five percenter. And I talked about that on the podcast. And, and there are a number of those out there. Well, if I just left money in the main place I have it, I wouldn't be earning the 5%. So you want to be flexible with your money. But the short answer is, yes, it's true that there are things you can do by the way accounts are titled that in a single institution, you can go beyond the quarter million. Another familiar saying, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yes. (laughs) Okay. Alan in Florida says you recommend not keeping more than 250,000 in any bank. What about credit unions? Are they insured by the government? Yeah, great question. The credit unions, almost all credit unions in the United States are part of NCUA, the National Credit Union Administration, which is the federal equivalent of FDIC for banks. That's what it's called for credit unions. And the coverages are essentially identical. They are, it's the, it's the federal government. It's the real deal at credit unions. Now, I've been asked since Sunday, over and over again, people have said, okay, so why is nobody talking about problems at credit unions? Why has that not been an issue? I mentioned this briefly Sunday night, why the credit unions were not going to be an issue. Credit unions overwhelmingly do accounts for individuals. The super regional banks are what now I've noticed over the course of the last four days the journalists have settled on the term mid-sized banks is what they're calling the banks below the four giant monster mega banks. They're calling them mid-sized. Mid-sized banks overwhelmingly serve business accounts. And so their deposits were in most cases heavily uninsured. 
because business accounts are almost always for businesses going to be, in many cases, many times larger on hand at a bank than quarter million. I've looked and it's kind of settles in somewhere between 50 and 60% of deposit money in the mid-sized banks uninsured by the traditional FDIC limit. Credit unions, on the other hand, many of them do all their business only with individuals, and some will do a small amount of their business with companies, but it's very rare in a credit union that there are deposits that someone has on hand that exceed the quarter million NCUA limit. That's why there's been no run on credit unions, nothing like that. Okay, completely switching topics. This is from an anonymous person. In light of the recent developments of Americans losing their lives in Mexico, Uh can you give any advice about those wanting medical procedures at the lower cost that Mexican doctors provide? What are the pros and cons financially, and is the risk worth it? I have friends that have done this and others who are interested in going in the future. That was such an unbelievably tragic story, if you're aware Someone was going for a, it was a cosmetic mm-hmm. procedure and they crossed the border, uh, drug gang case of mistaken identity and uh, they kidnapped and killed two people, two people died and two people lived just horrific. And Mexico has had ongoing problems, obviously with the rule of law and the extreme violence and gruesome violence of the cartels. Having said that, we've got two things here. One, the chances that this would happen to you if you went to Mexico for medical tourism is so close to zero. It's, this is just almost like a freak occurrence with the tragic deaths. Um, That's number one. The cartels generally know who they're targeting and they're not targeting Americans coming across the border in one of these border towns that have the big medical operations. That's one issue. The second is the quality of care in Mexico is all over the board. And just by buzz, word of mouth, price, whatever. I mean, I'm a cheap guy, right? But price alone is not the determinant of it being a good idea to go to a particular provider in Mexico for care. There are specific guidelines, like there's a Joint Commission International that we talked about before. You make sure the facility that you're going to is of world standard. And depending on what kind of procedure you're having, there are similar bodies that can tell you the quality in general terms of the provider you'd be going to. So even though the the media coverage was about the gruesomeness and horrific nature of these tragic deaths at the hands of the cartel, the reality is the bigger issue day-to-day is, is the care up to standard? Very large percent of people who go to Mexico just based on price and have not done proper vetting of the provider end up having to have follow-up care in the United States, very large percent, because the care they got in Mexico because the provider they went to was not good enough. Now, this thing of medical tourism has long history, uh, particularly with complicated, expensive operations, even for people who are insured, who might go to Thailand. It is a very prominent place for people to go for very high-quality medical care 
people have had very good results, reducing dramatically the cost of a major operation, not cosmetic-oriented things, uh, heart kind of stuff often. And people go to Hungary for dental care. Gosh, from North America and all over Europe, people go to Hungary as like this magnet for people who need major dental work and are able to do so at a much lower cost. So medical tourism is something that can be good and can be risky. It's all your prep up front and research up front of the facility and provider that you're considering going to see. We do have an article on that at Clark.com. Right. Um, we followed that for years, mm-hmm. the medical tourism, and we have some of the checkmark steps you should take to make sure as best as any non-medical person can that the place you're going is really of a good enough quality that you can feel comfortable going there to save the money you'll save. And you know, I forgot to mention it's Costa Rica. A lot of Americans go to Costa Rica for expensive dental work that is considered to be of quality at many providers there equal to the United States, but at a tiny fraction of the cost of major dental work in the United States. Coming up ahead, gift cards. They have been like a curse in my life forever because, Krista, I mean, you've known me since 1997, right? Yep. When did you first hear me talk smack about gift cards? Like right the day I met you. Yeah, <laughs> and but they're relentlessly successful until the gift card you buy goes poof on you. I'm going to talk about that straight ahead. You need to know that if you are someone who says, yeah, 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 I know. You've been saying forever, don't buy gift cards. That there's one place, one way, buying a gift card is so too hazardous that at least don't do this. You go into one of the big drugstore chains or many different retail locations, could even be a gas station, and there will be an unprotected display rack for gift cards. These gift cards are supposedly activated not till they're used at the register. So criminals are making real money by working the unprotected gift card racks at various retailers. And I'll give you some of the tricks of the trade. I'm not giving away any secrets because everybody in law enforcement who works this knows about this. There was a new warning from the AARP how much this crime is going on. Federal Trade Commission put out a warning on this two years ago. And, you know, we're all busy with our lives and we really don't grab a lot of information out there because at the time it doesn't seem relevant to us. But here's what the criminals do. So you know how the gift cards that are on those unprotected racks, they'll be for all different places. You could be in a a drugstore chain looking through the rack and it could be restaurants, retailers, could be airlines, it could be any of a number of things, probably things I'm not even thinking about, spa places, whatever. But they're interested more in the gift cards that they can turn into merchandise right away. So often they'll be very heavily tilted towards retailers. So, you know, the card's not active till it's activated at the register. Fine. But what do the criminals want? They want the card number and they want the pen. Now, those are covered up in the pack you're buying. The criminals 
will take those cards, they will remove the things protecting the codes, they will then repackage the cards, go back in the store, and put them back on the gift card rack. They now have the card number and the pen number for that card. Then, this is where it gets diabolical. There's really inexpensive, off-the-shelf, dirty software that criminals use that repeatedly checks every card they've entered into their database. And then the second a card is activated, they immediately go to use that card to buy merchandise that they then fence or keep themselves. And then when you or the recipient of that card go to use it weeks or months later, and usually it's weeks, nobody gets a gift card. Well, the rare individual will get a gift card and use it immediately. And when they go to use it, the card shows no balance. Now, this is a problem that overwhelmingly involves gift cards sold at those display racks. And I'm not trying to diss you if that's how you earn your living, having these display racks. You didn't set these up as a way of being a gateway to criminal activity. It's not your fault. It's just how it's played out. And so gift cards bought from the establishment itself that the gift card will be used at, better idea. A gift card at that establishment, restaurant, retailer, whatever, sold behind their counter and activated behind their counter is much safer. And the reason for that is that you're much less likely to have this theft having taken place, number one. Number two, you don't have what's called diffusion of responsibility. You bought it at that restaurant. You bought it at that retailer. And if the card later turns out to be worth nothing, you go back to that place and you try to get them to figure out what happened, how it was used, and all the rest. Because what you're trying to do is get the money restored. But if you buy from one of those racks and you bought at a UFO retailer and it's for some other restaurant or some other retailer or whatever, they don't have any ability to check it out, to restore your funds or whatever. They might give you a toll-free number to call the the rack display company. And what are they going to do? They're going to say, life's tough and then you die. But again, it shows... Gosh, this could be like, we could come up with a list of the 3,471 reasons why you should never buy or give a gift card. (laughs) But this one of the display racks, hear me on this. Krista? Okay, Greg in Wisconsin says, I have a five-year arm at 6% interest on a condo taken out in January of 23. The arm tops out at 11.5% with an increase of no more than 1% each year. I do not plan on staying in the condo for five years. I have a vehicle loan with a balance of $22,000 with 0% interest. I have $400 a month that I can put toward either of these. My question is, should I pay down either of these or just put the extra money into a fund to save? So the 6% you have on the condo loan is higher than what you can earn on your money right now. And so I would say you take the 400 a month And you just took out the mortgage two months ago. I would put the money towards the mortgage balance as prepayment of principal every single month because the greatest impact of prepayment of principal is really early in a mortgage. So there will be a real benefit. You don't plan to stay 
more than five years, but think about it. You're taking out balance right away that will never, ever have that 6% charged on it every dollar you put towards it every month. So that to me would make sense. And the 0% you have on the vehicle loan, just let it pay as agreed and pay it out at the 0%. Todd in Florida says we have a pin from the IRS for our tax returns, but I noticed this year that it may be possible to get one of these for our minor children, dependents on our taxes. We don't use their socials for anything, no, so there's no credit freeze, but they are with the school system, so would it be advisable to request an IRS pin for them as well? So the IRS pin is an awesome process. It's not as urgent for a minor child who doesn't have any significant stream of income, but it is not a bad step to take. And the IRS pens, gosh, I guess that first came up when the IRS experimentally did so in the states of Florida and Georgia years ago. What the program does is it prevents individuals from pretending to be you and filing a false tax return as if they're you, because they won't have the secret code that the IRS, a unique code that they supply to you for each taxpayer. So now this is a national opportunity and something that I think is a great thing for any taxpayer to do. Um, For minor children, it's an additional step, but not a high priority until criminals figure out something diabolical to do with returns for minor children. But that's not on my radar yet. Aaron in Ohio says, Clark, with your motivation to save the most you can, I've been wondering if you ever choose to shop or eat local for the sake of supporting the small business owner, though it likely means spending a little more. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, Aaron, you know, there are times in life that we don't really have choices. My wife is obsessed with non-chains. And so whenever we go out to eat, we eat at non-chains, i.e., local establishments and it is a very different experience obviously than a chain experience and so the answer is yes it's something that I don't really think about but it's central to the choices that my wife makes and where we eat and so there is a variety there is a whole different experience eating at a non-chain but I would beg to differ with you that going to a non-chain is not necessarily more expensive. It depends on the level of restaurant. If you're going to an equivalent level of restaurant of a non-chain versus a chain, I don't think there's a price point difference. I will tell you there's something that some local restaurants are experimenting with, though, that I'm watching closely, that I'm fascinated by. So restaurants have had a hard time attracting and maintaining staff over the last few years. And there are restaurateurs, all local, because no chain would have the guts to try this, that are going to salaries for staff and charging more money for the meal itself, but a no-tipping policy, because then the employees know that they're going to come in for a shift. This is what they're going to earn. And it's a very interesting concept, but it's only been local establishments that have done so and more typically it's been what historically was called white tablecloth restaurants is there a modern term for that the kind of sit down kind of places Um, where they come over and say you know tonight our specials are blah blah 
and you ask, how much is that one? Always ask. Always ask. <laughs> Always. When they tell you something's a special and they're doing the glowing description, but they don't mention the price, remember, so you don't get surprised in the wallet later. Always say, oh, I'm really interested in that blah, blah, blah. How much is that? But I digress. Eating local, eating with a non-chain, great idea. And I want to tell you that I appreciate so much you being with us today. I know that as the issues in the financial markets continue, we will have situations that we will be there to serve you as necessary, as needed, to make sure that we give you the best up-to-the-minute information. And that's our job. That's what we're here for, is to give you information you can trust. I know there are times that the headlines can be really scary. And I want you to know that most of the time, the reality is much less dramatic, much less tumultuous for our country or for us than it seems from the initial headlines. And I'm hoping that that is the case with the disruptions in banking we've seen recently as well. But whatever comes with that, we will be there to serve you. Have a great day.